Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, the National National Retail Federation says this holiday season expected to set another record for online sales. But uh, did you know that uh, if uh, consumer habits mirror previous years, 20 to 30 percent, 20 to 30 percent of merchandise purchased will be returned? And that's a big problem. It's a big financial hit for retailers not to mention the logistical challenge to cover all that shipping, sorting, processing. So many major retailers are shortening their return windows, and uh, maybe you've seen them, some restocking fees popping up uh, ahead of the holiday season. Of course, customers far from pleased about this. Robert Overstreet is an assistant professor of supply chain management at Iowa State University. He and his co-authors have just published a new study in the Journal of Business Research on the implications of return policies. Robert Overstreet, welcome to our program. Thank you very much for having me. When I reached out to our listeners this hour, your questions about retail returns, for instance, how important is a return policy in deciding where you shop? Or perhaps you have some pet peeves or an unusual experience of having to do with returning items, either online or in person uh, at a brick-and-mortar location. 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Robert, before we get into the details of what you looked at in your study, uh, set the stage a bit and describe the problem a little more, the, the problem we're addressing that retailers face. Well, it's, it's kind of a problem that the retailers created for themselves in, in an effort to be kind of the first movers to get that advantage of getting online sales. Uh, many companies offered very generous returns policies uh, in an effort to overcome some apprehension about buying online. Um, so what they did, they assumed all the risk of the purchaser. So the the buyer need not be aware because they could, if they didn't like it, they could just return it. Uh, what has happened uh, uh, due to increased prices uh, and what Sean Gorman, the CEO of L.O. Bean, described as a small but growing part of the population taking advantage of returns policies, they've they've now created uh, a little bit of a moral hazard, and uh, companies just aren't as equipped to handle the return flow as they are the outgoing flow. We're as logisticians, supply chain manager, we're really good at getting product to the customer. Mm-hmm. It's it's much more difficult to bring that product back into the system the other way. Yeah, and talk about LL Bean because we know them as a pioneer in returning items and what probably for decades they've had that return policy up until recently where no questions asked, return anything. And I think there was even a documentary I saw on it once. Some, there was, I remember a, a, p- a picture, a pair of shoes, obviously been worn for years, thrown back in the box, returned to L.L. Bean for a full refund. And that's changed, right? And that's, that's sort of the seed uh, for your um, study here, isn't it? It was. Uh, we, we saw that article. He, Sean Gorman actually released um, a letter to customers stating that they were changing their long-standing policy, and they were still going to be 
very generous. And one year with a receipt, um, that's that's quite the uh, return policy. Um, but they suffered some severe backlash from from uh, consumers. Uh, in fact, RepTrack had them in the teens for the within the top 100 companies uh, in the United States in 2017, and they dropped completely out of the top 100 by the next year. Uh, and there were several lawsuits filed against hmm. uh, L.O. Bean for changing the policy, mm-hmm. which what they had found was, was that growing number of people that were misinterpreting their policy. Um, there were people dumpster diving, going to thrift stores, finding anything with L.O. Bean and then returning it for a full refund. Oh, my. Oh. Um, that, that, of course, is not the intent of their policy. No, no. Um, okay, so you've set the stage nicely here. Describe your study along with your co-authors. What specifically did you look at, and, and how did you do it? Okay, well, let me back up just a little bit. So that was kind of one extreme, mm-hmm. and we saw a Wall Street Journal article about other retailers uh, using a third-party information provider to let them know kind of what the the return score was for their customers. So anytime when you go in to return something and they say, oh, could you give us your phone number or your credit card number, you know, that's a way to track you. So they, they can, this company keeps a score uh, of your buying and return habits. And these companies use that to, to tailor their policy. So we, we looked at like the, the uh, LL Bean model of, we, with broad brush, we changed the policy for everybody. And then this Wall Street Journal article they, is very pinpoint surgical. You know, we're only going to, you know, affect those people that we perceive as violating our policy. So we, we craft, crafted a vignette where the policy changed. And all we said was that the policy was changing such that the return window was shortening. And we didn't want to give absolutes because some people would have, they would bias our results. So we just said they were shortening the return window. Mm-hmm. And they were either shortening it for all customers or some customers. And then uh, the the Gorman model, the LL Bean, when he released that memo, there was widespread press releases everywhere on this policy change. So, so they did a full media blitz. Well, the Wall Street Journal article about the companies getting the information from a third party, that was a little lower key. Although it was a Wall Street Journal article, but the companies themselves were not promoting that. Um, so we looked at communication strategies where communication was like this full court press as, as provided by LL Bean or just the bare minimum, which is required by the Better Business Bureau that you have to have your returns policy posted at the point of sale on your website or on the receipt mm-hmm. um, or a combination thereof. So uh, we sent that to 400. Well, we sent it, we got 462 uh, responses back. We, we found that uh, the effect of the change on intentions uh, of the customer to either switch to another retailer or switch to the online presence of that online, uh, the physical presence of that online retailer uh, was not affected at all by the change itself, not directly. Uh, everything was moderated, uh, mediated, excuse me, mediated through negative word of mouth. So um, it, it had to do with how kind of upset they were. So whether they would verbalize that, um, anger, um, resentment toward the the retailer. Uh, And we found that uh, there was a positive relationship between um, a general policy versus a a, um, targeted policy in that the general policy had a a much higher uh, negative word of mouth than did the uh, targeted policy. Right, and, and, and it, comes, it comes down to, I mean, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because one seems fair, 
the other one seems unfair to a, a majority of people who don't return things, don't abuse a return policy, right? Correct. And that's, uh, we did a follow-up study, just, just getting some, some qualitative data so we kind of dig into our, our findings a little more. And, and to your point exactly, um, actually, we got, it, we got it, 44% of our survey respondents viewed the targeted policy as fair with comments, you know, uh, ranging, there's a, there's a range, but many of them just said, we applaud the, the, the retailer for targeting those that are abusing the policy because there was this understanding that by those people um, abusing the policy, the, that the prices go up for everybody, that you're being punished by their bad actions. So it was, in their words, nice to see the retailer taking action against them. Okay, Robert Overstreet, Overstreet with us this hour of Iowa State University. He, he re- researches returns management. Yes, there is such a thing <laughs> as, as someone who, who specializes. It's a fascinating area of study, Robert. I don't want to belittle it in the least. I think it's fascinating. Uh, so um, just for those who've, who've just joined us, uh, uh, growth in returns have posed financial and logistical challenges for retailers. And, and uh, Robert's a new study in the Journal of Business Research uh, looks at the implications of targeted return policies as opposed to generalized ones. one 780 9100 River to You know, uh, Robert, I think we have to... <laughs> you, one of the points you make, I think, is that many people don't know they are what are called serial returners. So d- do a, a question you can ask me or just what questions did you ask yourself to know if you are a, a serial returner and, and how many serial returners are out there? Well, we it wasn't published in this current study, but we did want to want to know that. And we asked our participants if they viewed themselves as someone who would violate a policy or, you know, maybe stretch the intention of the policy. And and about one or two percent of the respondents kind of self-identified as um, a serial returner. But we we felt um, that that was uh, in large part self-serving. So, you know, everybody's a hero of their own story. Um, So we, we, we tried it a different way. We asked Thinking about your friends and family, how many of them do you think, do you feel, violate ret- retailers' returns policies? And we got an answer closer to 10%. So we we think that's probably closer to reality. Mm-hmm. What, what do, I mean, what do retailers consider a, re, uh, a serial returner? Do they have a, a number that they look to and say, you know, this is unsustainable because it's this percentage? Well, I think we're getting to that point. And, and some companies are now restricting how much you can return within a six-month period to try to stem that uh, tide. Uh, so the, the policies are catching up. Mm-hmm. Robert, what can you tell us about what happens to returns? I've thought a lot about this. I assume others have, too. Um, I've heard, for instance, that um, in some cases, uh, you online, if you return a low-cost item, it may not be restocked. It may be just chucked because it's not worth the the amount of labor that goes into restocking it. Uh, that's very true. And and what some retailers are, are doing now is not even taking the return. They're issuing the credit to the customer and telling them, just, just keep it. It's just, it's just cheaper for the retailer, for the customer to keep the item. But that 
that then creates a, another moral hazard in that now you've incentivized people to just say, hey, I want to return it, and th- knowing they might get to keep it anyway and get their money back. Um, so it's it, it's not a long-term solution. Right, sure. and well, and it, it gives you a bad feeling because, I mean, it makes me less likely to return something even if I would like to take advantage of the policy, not abuse the policy because I think, well, this is a perfectly good fill-in-the-blank, um, and I'm returning it for you know, not because it doesn't work, for another reason, a legitimate reason, and it's going to go into a landfill? Is that what you're saying, Robert? Well, not necessarily. There, there are other steps, but there is a decision that has to be made when it comes back, whether it's resellable, uh, whether it can be sent to maybe a discount center, uh, whether it could be donated uh, somehow. Uh, last resort would be uh, uh, disposal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, Um did you find that there, there, there are common misconceptions customers have about their returning items, others we haven't mentioned? Um, no, I, I don't think so. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, now, now, we had another subcategory of a, a serial returner I think you can touch on. These are called um, retail borrowers. What are those? Uh, so... If uh, someone, say, has a, a job interview and they need a nice jacket and they go buy a jacket and they do their interview and they return the jacket, um, they didn't really have the intention of buying it. They were retail borrowing. Um, they didn't violate you know, the store policy. They returned it with the receipt within the 30 days. But that's not what the intent of the policy is. It's, it's meant to cover some sort of dissatisfaction or something wrong with the item, not to let someone borrow it for up to 30 days. Mm-hmm. How wide do we know how widespread retail borrowing is? I, I don't think we do. I don't think there's a good answer out there for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one point I wanted to hit on sure. was that that retailers have, have somewhat kind of made made this bed in that by taking away uh, some of the risk for consumers, they were incentivizing people to buy online. Um, some companies have that figured in. It's kind of the cost of doing business. Zappos, for example, that's kind of their model. You know, if you wear a size nine shoe, order the eight and a half, nine and nine and a half, try them all on and keep the one you like and send them back, send the other two back. Yep. That's the way they kind of built their business, but it's kind of baked into their prices where a lot of other retailers, they don't have the kind of margins to, to play in that area. But to get a foothold in the online sales, they, they have had a policy like that. Um, and, and what one of the abuses would be, I don't really know, you know, what shirt's going to look best on me. So I buy the blue one, the green one, and red one, and whichever one makes my eyes pop, that's the one I keep, and I send the <laughs> other two back. Yeah, you know, it's it's not the intent uh, of their of their policy, but we I think retailers have somewhat trained uh, customers to to do that. Well, when you say not not the intent. You know, when I read some things online, Amazon, it sure seems like it's the intent. They want to make it as easy as possible for you. So, yeah, they've they've made this problem for themselves, really, haven't they? Because it's surely, based on the policies that you read in a lot of online buying, it doesn't feel like you're anything close to, you know, doing something illegal or ab- abusing, using that word uh, at all. It feels like yeah, this is what they want me to do. Order three shirts in different colors and return two of them. Right. It's just the cost of 
dealing with those two return shirts now, not only, you know, the, the cost of like bringing it back in, assuming it can be resold, there's still people that have to handle that, get it to the right place, put it back on the shelf. Now the logistics cost of, of moving things have gone, you know, way up. Um, yeah. in, in the, so there's a lot of other costs associated with, you know, getting it back out for someone else to possibly buy it. Yeah. Um, Talk a little bit more about how, when a, when a retailer wants to change the, the policy, the return policy, how the way it's communicated matters a lot. Yeah. In, in fact, um, we even found that when a policy is generalized based on, based on our, our sample, um, that with full communication to the customer, it um, had a significantly lower um, negative word of mouth intention. Um, so basically we found even if it's generalized, if it's well publicized, there was really no difference in the negative word of mouth intention with even a, a uh, targeted policy. The only time we saw a, a dramatic uh, increase was when it was generalized and not publicized. You Retailers really need to communicate well with their customers. And that's part of customer relationship management is, is telling them what's changing and how it's changing um, and why? And why? And why it's there. and why it's changing? Right? You, you need a rationale that uh, customers can follow, or you get them. You well, get a, yeah, or you get on a bad thought, list. Thought, <laughs> exactly. We we thought so, and our initial um, our, our initial vignette that we sent out had uh, a, a reason for uh, the change, and we hypothesized that you know if you told people that you know we're doing it to increase our revenue, the retailer saying that we're doing this to increase our revenue right. versus we're doing this to save you money, the customer money. We thought there would be a difference, but what we found was that uh, we couldn't tease out a difference in a, in a vignette. And, and in real life, you know, that may differ. And that's why we wanted to get, you know, the, the qualitative responses to kind of fill in kind of where our, our understanding of the results we, we, we got back. Um, but I, 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 I believe that uh, any any information you can give the customer will will ease that change. Mm-hmm. What about the case? Uh, well, well, let me let me ask broadly how the pandemic uh, fed into your research or set the stage for your research because that uh, what dramatically after during the pandemic a dramatic uh, uptick you know in the, um, in the the products that people bought online and then of course returns going up. How did the pandemic shape this? Actually, we had been working on this study well before the pandemic. It's just it's um, only became it's only become more re- relevant as as time has progressed. But we we kind of saw the the handwriting on the wall um, back with um, in 2018 that you know this is not going to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's sustain- the, the level of returns. Is this not sustainable for all retailers or new only certain types of retailers? I think this is going to be across the board. It, it's um, it's becoming more and more costly. So they, the retailers are going to have to find a way to deal with this and change customer expectation and maybe put some more of that um, risk back on the shoulders of the buyer and truly let the buyer beware um, where right now the buyer has free reign because there's no risk yeah. for, for many things, right? Because that can just return it. Yeah. So you say this has to change. Retailers have to change the policy. So your study, the significance of it for retailers listening, uh, for any retailers, would be what? If, if it's possible to target those that are, are 
are not following the intent of your policy, that would be best. But if you must change for all your customers, communicate it uh, as broadly as possible so that, that they understand what's, what's happening and why. Mm-hmm. So what does future research, um, perhaps related to this in your area, look like? Uh, where is this whole sector of returns headed, do you feel, and, and what questions do you have? Oh, that's that's a great question. I I don't know, and and it, it's so wide open right now. I, I would like to uh, follow how those de- decisions are, how those re- returns are handled once they're re- once they're received back into the organization. How the disposition instructions are, are the dispositions are made with the material, and uh, wh- to what lengths uh, they go to keep it out of say a, a landfill, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, uh, is there any way to predict how, or, or an inkling, a feeling that you have based on your expertise in this area, how return policies are likely to be different next year at this time or in five years? Any idea? I would I would think uh, shorter windows uh, with receipt, um, maybe with uh, smaller re- return fees at first to um, try to dis persuade people from re- returning, or maybe the more appropriate way to say that is have people be more intentional when they buy, uh, making sure they get the, the right color shirt that makes their eyes pop uh, while they're in the store, um, rather than maybe um, buying three different versions of the same shirt. I wonder if Robert Overstreet, you, as a um, return management researcher, have a different way of returning. Think about returning things differently than the rest of us. <laughs> it would, I wouldn't blame you for overthinking it. But what do you do? Do you think you're in the middle of the pack? You're not a serial. Uh, you're not a serial returner, are you? I am not. I hate returning. Actually, my wife. Uh, <laughs> if something has to be returned, my wife takes care of it. But I, I'm I'm pretty intentional about what I buy. I, I generally won't return something unless there's a uh, a fault with it. Okay. Robert, uh, thank you for joining us this half hour. Thank you very much for having me. Robert Overstreet, Assistant Professor of Supply Chain Management at Iowa State University. He, as we've been talking about, researches returns management, a fascinating area. Coming up after a short break, a couple of interesting items. Jared Strong of Iowa Capital Dispatch will be with us. Uh, He'll tell us the story of one eastern Iowa community, Comanche, that needs a new drinking water source due to contamination by forever chemicals. Uh, Also, you've probably read about these tragedies, a rash of deadly fires here in Iowa. So we'll talk uh, fire safety with Fred Malvin. He's assistant chief of the Nevada, Iowa Fire Department. Uh, Time to make sure that your smoke alarms uh, and that you're outfitted to to handle any fire that might outbreak uh, break out in your home. We'll be back to talk about it when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. So glad you're on board on this 
edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up a little later in this half hour, after a rash of deadly, tragic fires here in Iowa, uh, we'll talk some uh, fire safety uh, with uh, Fred Malvin, Assistant Chief of the Nevada, Iowa Fire Department. So important to uh, remind ourselves and make sure that we're ready for fires and prevent fires in our homes uh, to avoid a tragedy. But first, Jared Strong of Iowa Capital Dispatch joins us with the story of one eastern Iowa community that needs a new drinking water source, this due to contamination by these forever chemicals. Um, and uh, we want to talk with Jared about the problem of forever chemicals in other communities as well. Jared Strong of Iowa Capital Dispatch, welcome back to our program. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. So this latest article, I know you've written a series of articles at Iowa Capital Dispatch of these forever chemicals posing problems for a number of communities in Iowa. But this particular one concerns the town of Comanche, uh, about 4,600 residents. Uh, uh, It's across the Mississippi River from a 3M company facility near Cordova, Illinois. Um, Before... Describe the problem that uh, and and how it was noticed in Comanche. Well, um, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency uh, has been looking into the situation there. 3M is a is a major manufacturer of these chemicals, and they the EPA found that uh, this uh, facility had been polluting the air, water, and the ground with uh, PFAS or forever chemicals uh, for decades. So it's uh, it determined that the you know the worst contamination was within about a three mile radius of the facility, and that includes um, about 200 uh, private water supplies, private wells uh, that 3M has agreed to provide water treatment systems for. But also, um, Comanche is within that radius, uh, like you said, across the river or across the Mississippi from the from the facility. So um, 3M has agreed to either um, provide a treatment system for Comanche or um, provide an alternative water supply, which sounds like uh, would mean drilling two uh, very deep wells mm-hmm. that would be away from that uh, contaminated soil. How did the PFAS contamination get all the way across the river? Is it, you said, both air and um, you know, pollution otherwise, ground pollution. How did it make its way over to these hundreds of wells in the Comanche area? Yeah, it's. I mean, it could be yeah, one of three ways, uh, through the air, uh, where it uh, just kind of disperses out and can get into the ground. Um, they have a, a wastewater treatment plant at that facility, um, and so the water that it, uh, the treated water that it discharges from that goes into the Mississippi River, and then uh, and then the sludge from that um, wastewater treatment uh, facility they spread that on uh, on uh, nearby land. I think that's uh, south of the facility. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's it's hard to like pinpoint to say that any one of those three things is the cause for the okay. contamination in Comanche. It's probably a, a combination of them. Mm-hmm. So what is 3M going to do for this community now? Uh, it, it they, they're in talks with the city. So like I said, either they're gonna they're gonna uh, find a way to treat the uh, 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 treat that water, which presents its own problems. You know, there might be longer-term costs with that. You know, once you remove PFAS from that water, what do you do with it? You know, they have to find a way to dispose of it. Uh, it seems like a more likely route will be that they um, will will drill a couple wells for the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, remind us what PFAS are. These PFAS are they per and polyfluoro 
alkyl substances, if I said that halfway correctly there. I mean, we benefit from that. We have in the past, right, uh, in our kitchen and other places. Yeah. I mean, they've been used for decades to make um, nonstick, uh, waterproof products, firefighting foams. Uh, they're in you know, popcorn bags and other food packaging. They, they basically have these <clears throat> excuse me, very strong molecular bonds, uh, which allows them to repel water and oil. But they also, those strong bonds also make it so they decay very, very slowly in the environment, which is why we call them forever chemicals. Yeah. And do we have, you know, you, I, others, do we have forever chemicals in our blood system? It seems like we probably do. I, I, the last estimate that I saw was that uh, in excess of like 95% of the people who live in the United States have detectable amounts of them in our bodies, and they tend to accumulate in our bodies. We don't, like, our bodies don't flush them out very quickly. That's very scary. So what do we know? And I know this is still being researched. What are the potential health health risks, known and and unknown? Well, they're they're known to be what are called uh, endocrine disruptors, which means they interfere uh, with our hormones. And it's, so they're they're linked to uh, various cancers, and a variety of other health issues, including like uh, developmental delays in children. Hmm. Well, what if you have a home filter system, you know, off the shelf, you buy these systems, uh, do they take care of it at all? Um, I believe it's like a, it's like a charcoal filter system uh, that will, uh, you know, help filter that out. I'm not sure exactly how effective they are. And of course, if it affects us, it's impacting fish and rivers and streams and other wildlife, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I haven't seen research on how it impacts uh, wildlife, but it, it the st- it's just everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we have these in all of our products. You know, of course, these manufacturing facilities, um, places where uh, they've used these firefighting foams. Those are sort of known contaminated sites. But because it's in so many products, you know, that we use in our house, whatever we discard goes to the landfill. And so, you know, landfills are, are full of these chemicals, too, and they can become like a, a source of contamination for the area. In the meantime, as you point out in your article, 3M has used other, uses now other chemicals. Other, Do we know if these are, I mean, are, were they engineered to be safer in these regards? I mean, they're supposed to be. They say that they are. Um, But uh, there's like there's thousands of uh, PFAS chemicals and research has been pretty limited to sort of the two best known ones uh, called PFOA and PFOS. So those are no longer manufactured um, in the United States um, under an agreement between uh, these major manufacturers and the EPA. Um, So they've been replaced with these variants, but there's there's such little research. it's kind of up in the air at this point yeah. um, as to how much of a health impact they can have. This is a bit of a series of articles you've written because other Iowa communities you focused on remind us of where else you've been that had problems with PFAS. Yeah, uh, this is <clears throat> a lot of this has been born out of uh, the DNR's testing, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources testing over the past a uh, little bit more than a year. And so they've been sampling dozens of sites um, across the state you know, there's been detections um, in the drinking water in Ames, uh, you know, Burlington, Sioux City, West Des Moines, kind of all over the place. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, when the DNR started testing, 
the threat, the, the federal safety threshold was a 70 parts per million, or excuse me, parts per trillion. So we're talking about very, very small concentrations. Um, but then um, the EPA is uh, uh, released a new um, health advisory that, that moved that 70 down to, in one case, 0 0.004 parts per trillion. So in all these places where they've detected these very small amounts, all of them exceed um, that new uh, federal health advisory. Mm, very worrying. Well, listeners, I'm sure many have on their minds the question, how can I find out about the cam contamination in my drinking water? What would you say to that question? There's there's private tests that you can do. I mean, it's I think it's it will cost you several hundred dollars perhaps. Uh, but the DNR has done a, a pretty good job, I think, of identifying the most likely uh, uh, pla uh, places where there might be this contamination. <clears throat> and that includes along the Mississippi River, uh, more than half the, uh, or roughly half the detections have come in Mississippi River cities. Uh, and some of them draw water directly from the Mississippi. And so these tests have shown that the Mississippi River itself is contaminated with these chemicals. Okay, Jared Strong, as always, thank you for your excellent reporting uh, on this. Senior reporter with Iowa Capital Dispatch, talking about the problem of forever chemicals uh, in many of our communities. Jared Strong, we appreciate it. Until next time, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. At least 35 people have died in fires in Iowa this year, uh, in 2022, and that's up uh, from 29 in all of 2021. Uh, so especially as the weather turns cold, these risks of structure fires go up. Um, the winter holiday period, typically a time of increased residential fire risk. So we thought it would be a good time to uh, check in with Fred Malvin. He's assistant chief in the Nevada, Iowa Fire Department. Hi, Fred. Hi, Ben. Glad to be here. So glad to be with you. You've got an impressive resume. Uh, you're also an associate professor emeritus for the College of Design at Iowa State University. You've been a volunteer firefighter for the Nevada Department for over 40 years, uh, also a firefighter even before that. You've also designed and facilitated manufacturing of firefighting tools for your company called Malvin Works. Um, other things as well, but let's let's get to, down to the serious business because these these tragedies are just horrible. Uh, I mean, for these families, of course, uh, and and also just to hear about in our communities, and especially when we hear they could have been prevented or or mitigated somehow. Tell us about some of the recent fires that have caused fatalities in our state. Well, this um, past week really has been. Uh representative of the kind of epidemic of fire incidents that can occur this time of year. Um, just uh, looking across the board at the, the news, uh, suspected causes for, uh, for fatal fires include things like um, power strips uh, overloaded or damaged, uh, electrical uh, sources of ignition are commonly cited as uh, sources of fire spread. Uh, the the recent history also tells us about the significance of location within a building. Um, in in one case, fire on the third floor of uh, a structure that resulted in multiple fatalities. In another case, um, 
the lives were claimed in the basement of the mm-hmm. the building. So uh, I, I think the the takeaway on this is there there isn't a single fire scenario. Fires have numerous variables, and every every one has its own unique personality. So it's really the structure that you're in, how it's um, divided up, uh, what floor you're on, how many floors that determines the behavior of a fire, Fred, if I'm understanding you right? Well, that's certainly one variable. Um, I, I think your your comment or your identification of openness um, seems to be a critical one in recent years. For example, if we have a, a building that is defined by uh, rooms that are isolated by individual doors, uh, the spread of fire is slowed considerably compared to the more modern trend towards um, so-called open space planning where there really aren't doors that separate so-called rooms such as living rooms, dining rooms, kitchens. They're all one big uh, compartment that allows fire to spread fairly freely from one to the other. Mm -hmm. But also there's, uh, I mean, if you're very compartmentalized with an older style home or structure, um, you're less likely if you're in one room closed off from the rest of the structure and they're less likely to know there's a fire where, I mean, the openness has its, has its benefits too. You're more likely to know there's a fire in, a, in, in the structure, aren't you? That's, that's certainly true in the, the absolute, but uh, when you introduce smoke detection systems into that equation and you consider detectors that are um, targeted to specific smaller compartments, that pretty much offsets that problem of, mm-hmm. of closed spaces. And uh, this closed space phenomenon is a relatively recent realization uh, intuitively, it makes sense, but um, I- even in fire suppression, uh, fire personnel are incl- encouraged to close off spaces as a way of preventing fire spread into them. Yeah. These recent tragedies we've we've read about here, Mason City, four children killed in a fire in Cedar Rapids, another fire that claimed two lives. Of course, many fires that result in injuries. We had a, a bright spot uh, there in, in Red Oak, a recent fire in the little town of Red Oak. Um, evidently, a guy took a l- wrong turn. I don't know if you heard about this, Fred. He took a wrong turn down a street in the middle of the night and actually saw flames as this fire was very early on uh, and pounded on the, the side of the house, the windows, and and woke, um, saved, what, four lives? Right. Well, there's certainly no substitute for um, civic-mindedness in that particular occasion, but um, that's where, again, smoke detectors are such a critical uh, deterrent to fatalities and fires because uh, even overnight where there's very little vigilance uh, out at the street level, uh, a working, active, well-installed detection system gives you that kind of early alert that... uh, leaves all of the options open for the occupant. Mm -hmm. Okay. Give us sort of a quick version of what you should do if you detect a fire in in your house. If you've got a kitchen fire, of course, if it's small, your instinct is let's try to put it out, right? How do you know when to leave? How do you know what to do? Are there rules there? 
Well, I think from the, the fire suppression perspective, the, the most important thing is protection of the occupants. And so our encouragement would always be to uh, ensure that all of the occupants are, are out or away from harm and safe before considering other steps. Um, so uh, once out of the structure, trying to do accounting of the occupants that are believed or known to be in the building, uh, certainly as quickly as possible thereafter, uh, issuing an alarm uh, through the, the dispatch center or through neighbors. Um, while extinguishment is our, our first instinct as occupants, uh, it in a way flies in the face of that idea of protecting lives. So few people are really well prepared to use uh, extinguishers effectively for the kinds of fires they find in the house. Yeah, you made me think. So, I, uh, yeah, I've got to update. I mean, you've always got to check that that level on your extinguishers, even if you have <clears> them. <throat> they go down after a few years, right? Right. They they can go down. They can compact. They can uh, they can just simply expire. Uh, some people are not aware that they're they're typically one use. <clears throat> excuse me, one use equipment. And uh, therefore, if uh, an extinguisher has been used, there's no such thing as a partial use. Uh, it needs to be considered exhausted and, mm-hmm. and replaced. Mm-hmm. But, but, but I think uh, I'd add, if I may, that, uh, that training to, uh, to use the extinguishers or preparation, at least to use the extinguishers, is absolutely critical to um, it's not an automatic system. The The user needs to pull the pin. They need to uh, point the uh, the exhaust at the, the base of the fire. They need to, to squeeze the extinguisher and give it a slight sweep uh, at the end. So it, it takes some preparation to be used effectively. Yeah, Fred, we only have a couple minutes left, but I wanted to ask you, what is it like? You've got decades of firefighting experience in an urban environment. What's it like to respond to a serious fire stru- structure fire? Well, it's it's always humbling, um, for certain. Uh, it's um, fire pre- fire prevention is co-equal to fire protection and extinguishment with us, and so right away when you you see a fire, you can't help but be um, thinking that the fire prevention effort has not been wholly successful, and what could we have done to to prevent it? Um, Certainly, um, being appreciative of homes that are well marked with an address system that's equal, easy to find, Mm -hmm. uh, that's important. Um, Having um, well uh, cleared fire hydrants, sometimes by the occupants themselves, those are all important uh, features. And in any case, the fire department share is in the tragedy of the moment. Yeah. And and when we get severely cold weather, it's harder for firefighters uh, to, to operate in the out-of-doors, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Just just to do the simple things, uh, the routine things, is more difficult. But when you add to that uh, walkways that are more likely to be slick or not cleared, uh, second means of egress, you know, like back doors that may have been given less attention than the front doors, that, that can make a difference. Um, the, the nature of the lighting, the, you know, with shorter days, there's, there's less light in a 24-hour period. It, it all adds up. 
Right. And very quickly before we go, some tips on those holiday things that pop up. We've lights on trees, lights everywhere else, uh, some, some candles more, more often this time of year. What can you say very quickly about that? Well, also what, what we do with, uh, with Christmas um, <laughs> waste, if you will. I mean, it's, it's very easy to, uh, in the, the spirit of the moment, to, to pile boxes in, a, in one location, kind of out of sight, out of mind. Those can be a very rich source of fuel. Mm. Uh, be careful around fireplaces. Um, and, of course, as you mentioned, the, the hot lights that may be ignition sources themselves. Okay. Um, Fred, any other tips here? I've got uh, check your smoke alarms. Let's all do that. Um, let's make sure our extinguishers are, well, if you've had it for a lot of years, maybe it's time to just get a new fire extinguisher, right? <laughs> right. And, um, and Certainly certainly check those detectors. Yeah. And at one of the top of the list of causes of fires is just letting a candle burn, right? Leaving it unattended in a room. Right. Candles, appliances, holiday decorations, careless smoking, uh, electrical overload on our circuits. We're really electronically oriented, so those are all important features. Right. Don't make a big octopus out of all these uh, power strips and things like that. and Stick it under a carpet. That's even worse, right? Uh, Right. Some of those things seem really hard to avoid. Yeah. Okay. Fred Malvin, thanks for coming into our AIMS studio. We appreciate it with some uh, safety tips uh, to avoid fire, prevent fire. Fred Malvin, Assistant Chief, the Nevada Fire Department. Decades of experience as a volunteer firefighter in addition. Fred, you take care. Thanks. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Coming up tomorrow on our program, well, this will be fascinating. The future USS Iowa, it's a new $2 billion nuclear attack submarine now near completion. I'll talk with a submarine veteran who lives here in Iowa, also a lieutenant uh, who she will serve aboard the future USS Iowa, um, working and living aboard a nuclear attack submarine. Tomorrow on the program, we hope you'll tune in. River to River today, produced by Sam McIntosh. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.